It's Friday, February 25th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. The CDC updates its masking guidelines for the country. Baltimore's mayor will lift indoor mask mandates in the city. Recreational marijuana legislation breezed through Maryland's House of Delegates. Paid family leave and staffing shortages and the state's education system also took center stage in Annapolis. The Community College of Baltimore discusses the slave history of its Catonsville campus. And we'll have the second in our series, Conversations with Black Women in Medicine, this month. Executive Editor Danielle Irby speaks with Dr. Nicole Rochester, founder of Your GPS Doc, about how to navigate the medical system and advocate for yourself and your aging loved ones. It's The Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. The CDC announced today that it is relaxing indoor masking guidelines for about 70 percent of the country, including most Maryland counties. The updated guidelines are based on a new COVID-19 tracking tool the CDC issued today, which is designed to measure the risk of severe disease within an area rather than infection. The tool factors in a county's hospitalizations, hospital capacity and new COVID cases. It reclassifies some areas that previously had substantial or high transmission as low to medium risk. The CDC still recommends masking in areas it considers high risk, according to the new tool. The Joint Committee on Administrative, Executive and Legislative Review voted 17 to 1 today to allow Maryland school systems to decide whether or not to end their mask mandates. WYPR's Callan Tanzel Suddeth has more. The decision upholds the Board of Education's Tuesday vote. Delegate Sherry Sample-Hughes, who represents Dorchester and Wicomico counties, said pleas from a mother influenced her lone nay vote. She referenced her disabled child um, and wanting to make sure that they're able to attend school. So at this juncture, my, my decision is no. Um, I came to this meeting with a different mindset, but certainly this is where I am at this time. Baltimore City Delegate Brooke Learman voted yes, but said it's important individual districts remain vigilant. I certainly hope that our local school districts moving forward will be guided by public health, and it's refreshing to see things moving in the right direction in Maryland. The decision takes effect immediately. For WYPR News, I'm Callan Tansel Suddeth. Maryland has surpassed 1 million coronavirus cases since the start of the pandemic. State health officials today reported an additional 672 positive cases, pushing the state past the 1 million mark. The positivity rate remains below 3 percent. Baltimore's indoor mask mandate will lift next week. Mayor Brandon Scott announced his decision Thursday, citing improving COVID-19 rates. WYPR's Emily Sullivan reports. Indoor spaces, both public and private, will no longer require masks starting Tuesday, March 1st. Business owners can keep the restriction in place if they wish. More than three quarters of residents aged 12 and up have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. The city's seven-day positivity rate is at about 2 percent, a decrease of 77 percent from a month ago. Scott says these trends are encouraging. There is now an even brighter light at the end of the tunnel. And hopefully we can begin uh, to return to our new normal. Still, Health Commissioner Dr. Letitia Duraza cautions the pandemic is not over. I still encourage individuals to wear masks in indoor crowded spaces, especially those that are poorly ventilated. City schools are not affected by Scott's decision. 
Emily Sullivan, WYPR News. There are several new casino locations offering COVID-19 vaccines in Maryland. Starting tomorrow, you can get vaccinated at the Rocky Gap Casino Resort in Flintstone. A full list of locations can be found at the Maryland Department of Health website. Visitors to Baltimore's National Aquarium will no longer need to be vaccinated as of today. Aquarium officials say they decided to drop the mandate because of improving COVID-19 metrics in the area. Turning to our state house roundup, the House of Delegates approved by wide margins today a state constitutional amendment to legalize marijuana and a bill that spells out the details. But WYPR's Joel McCord reports those details weren't quite enough for at least one Democrat. Delegate Gabriel Acevedo of Montgomery County said he supports legalization, but the measures fail to repair the harm done to communities disproportionately affected by drug crackdowns. And unfortunately, that bill does not do that. And so I cannot support a piece of legislation that I've made it clear I will not support if we do not address the equity piece of this. Delegate Luke Clippinger, the bill's sponsor, said the House was beginning the process of legalizing cannabis and would work out more details next year. But taking the important first steps now in the areas of public safety and public health to make sure that we do this, that we do it right. Maryland Senate Democrats renewed their push Thursday to get a paid family and medical leave bill through the General Assembly. WYPR's Joel McCord reports. The bills have failed in three previous legislative sessions, yet Senate President Bill Ferguson insisted in a press conference this will be the year they succeed. We cannot delay any longer. Paid family and medical leave continues to be essential for our society overall, for the workforce, and for our overall economy as we recover from this pandemic. The bills awaiting action in House and Senate committees create a state-run insurance fund that employers and employees would contribute to. Workers who need the leave could submit a claim and draw a portion of their weekly salary. Senator Antonio Hayes, the lead sponsor of the Senate bill, said Maryland has failed to follow the lead of other states and countries. Maryland has remained behind stuck in a framework from the past that ignores the realities that the modern workplace and workforce have. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Two pieces of legislation aimed at addressing staffing shortages and low wages took center stage during a virtual press conference hosted by the Maryland State Education Association Thursday. Callan Tanzel-Suddeth has that report. And it's very important to make sure that Our educators understand whether you're driving a bus, whether you're working in a building, whether you're working in a special education classroom, uh, that they're appreciated. That was Montgomery County Senator Craig Zucker, who has proposed both $500 annual bonuses for education support professionals and a legislative work group to study their pay. Prince George's County Delegate Jazz Lewis is sponsoring a bill that would allow teachers to discuss class sizes during collective bargaining, something currently illegal in the state. Right now, Teachers are reporting widespread burnout because of the pandemic. Their workload, and especially the class sizes they're forced to work with. We are facing a rise in turnover and staffing shortages because we are forcing teachers into impossible situations. Both bills have hearings early next month. For WYPR News, I'm Callan Tansel-Suddeth. The University of Maryland, Baltimore County, has received the largest donation in the school's history, $21 million. The gift comes from the Sherman Family Donation and will be used to create a new center called the Betsy and George Sherman Center. Sherman, a former teacher, supported educational opportunities for underprivileged students. 
The Sherman family has donated $38 million to the campus over the last quarter century. Community College of Baltimore County is coming to terms with the history of slavery on its land. Its Catonsville campus, established nearly a century after the Civil War, is examining the visible vestiges of slave history on its land and unearthing others. WYPR's John Lee reports from the campus. There are the typical modern buildings and parking lots you see at any community college on CCBC's Catonsville campus, but there are also reminders of the past. A stone farmhouse built in 1819, the Hilton Mansion built in 1828, both built by slaves. Michelle Wright is a professor of history and Africana studies. She says she uses those buildings to teach her students the history of the land. They're shocked, and, and especially when you talk about the mansion, because that's the first thing you see when you drive up the hill. And you, you say, you know, that's sort of, that was the big house. That was the, the house where the, the owners lived. Through its history, the plantation served as a farm for growing tobacco as well as timber to fuel iron furnaces. The slaves worked there as well. I think it's kind of fascinating that, that many of the enslaved men were making some of the things that would further enslave them, like the collars, the slave collars that they had to wear with the bells or the spikes on them. They were making those. They were making some of the shackles. When you walk around the heart of the Catonsville campus, you find markers that explain the history. The one that's down here is called um, People Not Property. It's a visible marker that shows how, for more than 120 years, enslaved blacks worked the plantation for 13 owners. We do walk upon this land, and, and, and this history, it really isn't invisible. You can actually look at it. You can actually see some of the things that, that were built, and you can sort of imagine some of the stories. Universities across the country are reckoning with the debt they owe the slaves who built their institutions and worked there. Long-established universities such as Brown, Georgetown, and the University of Maryland have direct ties to slave labor. We do not, of course, but our region has a history with slavery. CCBC President Sandra Curtinitis says the interest in the history of the Catonsville campus was sparked by the $7 million renovation of the Hilton Mansion several years ago, turning it into offices and an honors lounge. So CCBC turned to its faculty. This is their world. They, they, they're historians. They really began to dig into the history of the site. CCBC is a member of Universities Studying Slavery, a consortium of nearly 90 schools. It's one of only two community colleges in the project. Participants in the consortium compare notes on how they're addressing their histories of human bondage and racism. Kurt Van Dack is its managing director. This isn't all the business of apologetics. It's also the business of we're educational institutions. And I think what's really cool about all of these, even at a community college, is students are often involved in doing some of the hands-on research and learning actively. Students like Clara Weaver, who's 19 and will graduate from CCBC with an associate's degree in general studies this spring. She's been part of the school's Invisible History Project, which researches the history of the land, including the enslaved people who worked it. It was really eye-opening to me to just see, you know, how I've benefited from their labor. You know, they built all these buildings on campus and they kept the state running, which, you know, 
helped it to eventually end up in the college's hands, which let me go to college there. Weaver's research includes telling the story of how slaves played a critical role in the raising of thoroughbred horses. John Lee, WIPR News. This week on The Daily Dose, our executive editor, Danielle Irby, is stepping out from behind the scenes for a series of conversations with black women in medicine. Today, a conversation with Dr. Nicole Rochester, a physician and founder of Your GPS Doc. She's a TED Talk veteran, a health advocate, a mom, and an expert on how to navigate the health system so that you can be a better advocate for yourself and for your aging loved ones, often at the most trying times in your life. Welcome, Dr. Nicole Rochester. And we should let everyone know that we've known each other for quite a while, so I do have liberty to call you Nicole. So how are you? Oh, hi, Danielle. I'm doing well. And yes, it has been a long time since we've had a chance to connect. It's a pleasure to be here today with you. And it's great to have you. So let's jump right into it. Explain your GPS doc. Your GPS doc is a health advocacy and consulting company. And uh, my primary mission for the company is to help patients and their family caregivers understand and navigate the healthcare system. Now, uh, you were a hospitalist prior to starting your GPS doc. So, you know, in the eyes of many, particularly as a black woman in medicine, you'd made it success-wise. So first, remind me, because you know I always ask you, what the hospitalist specially entails, and then why the big change, stepping out on faith at, at this time in your career? So yes, I am a board-certified pediatrician by training and I spent the first four years of my medical career doing primary care pediatrics. And then as you stated, I did transition to hospital medicine or I was what they call a pediatric hospitalist. And a hospitalist is a term to describe a physician who spends the majority of their time in the hospital. As healthcare has become increasingly complex, it became necessary to have a group of doctors and nurse practitioners and other providers who practice almost exclusively in the hospital setting, taking care of hospitalized patients, managing some of the administrative duties that go along with um, being hospitalized. And that also frees up the primary care doctors to stay in their offices so that they're not having to break up their day, leaving, driving to the hospital to see their patients. So now, if you will, take us on your journey of how you started your GPS doc, because I remember early conversations with you, I guess it's about two years now, when you told me you were coming out of the hospital setting, you were going to step out on faith, as you said, and start this business. So, you know, why? What was the impetus? And, and tell me about that journey. I appreciate that question. It's actually been four and a half years. Wow. Started the company. Yeah, time is flying. And I'll tie this into the end of your other question where you said, you know, I had made it, quote unquote. So why would I leave? Because that definitely ties into my purpose and why your GPS doc exists. I never wanted to be anything else other than a pediatrician. It's been literally my lifelong dream since I was seven or eight years old. And I actually loved my job. 
And what happened is that in 2010, my dad's health fairly abruptly declined. And my two older sisters and I had to kind of jump in and become his caregivers when it was clear that he was no longer able to do that effectively on his own. And so as the doctor in the group, I kind of became responsible for his medical care and I would accompany him to doctor's appointments. Unfortunately, my dad was in and out of the hospital, lots of emergency department visits and even a few nursing home stays. My sisters and I moved him into an assisted living facility. And so we had all of these encounters with the healthcare system and it opened up my eyes, Danielle, to a completely different side of medicine. And I realized that I had been very much sheltered in my little fantasy world of pediatrics where everybody jumps in and takes care of the kids. You know, everybody is, um, you know, attuned to the family. And so my world of practicing pediatric medicine turned out to be extremely different than, you know, I guess what I would call the real world of medicine. And so what I found with my dad is that it was incredibly difficult, even as a physician. And one of my sisters, as you know, is a nurse. It was incredibly difficult to navigate the healthcare system to get my dad the care that he needed. I also found, unfortunately, that there was a lot of um, uncoordination, disconnection within the system. He had lots of doctors and specialists. None of them were talking to each other. Information uh, was being mishandled. Balls were being dropped. And as his caregiver, I was being ignored. You know, I had a lot of useful information. My dad had a form of dementia. And so there were some things that he just wasn't able to communicate. And so I would try to step in as his daughter and I would get ignored and kind of, you know, pushed to the side uh, figuratively. And finally, one day I started to mention that I was a physician and the, the complete demeanor of the doctors, the medical team, how I was treated absolutely shifted. And I started to find that I was a much more effective advocate for my dad because of my medical knowledge, because of my background, and ultimately also because of my influence and knowing how to escalate concerns, um, you know, how to move up the, the chain of command, so to speak. And so every time I would get my dad through some really sticky situation or ask a question about his medical care that I knew the average layperson wouldn't even know to ask, I would think about the fact that there's 43 million other family caregivers out here who have no idea about this, um, you know, this healthcare system and how to navigate it. So I just kept wondering, what is everybody else doing? If it's this difficult for me and my sisters, what are the people doing who have no medical background? And that really is what led to the birth of your GPS stop. And, and you know, Nicole, uh, you know, this hits home for me. Um, I was thrust into that several years back when a uh, I was uh, given power of attorney for an aging and, and sick relative. And I have to tell you, navigating the Medicare system, trying to find a nursing home for this relative was a world I did not know how unprepared I was to navigate. So tell me a little bit more about why uh, your GPS doc is so crucial to the sandwich generation, families like mine that are both raising children, maybe near empty nesters and taking care of parents or other elderly relatives full or part time because uh, I'm finding more and more of my friends and even some colleagues that uh, they're raising children but also have the burden of caring for uh, aging relatives. 
Absolutely. And that was the situation that I was in. You know, we have two kids and I was working full time and my husband's working and we're trying to take care of my dad. And even with the help of my two sisters, you know, there were three of us and it was still a challenge. And, and so I would say it's incredibly important because it's one thing to understand your, your medical condition or your loved one's medical condition. It's a completely different thing to understand the system in which right. we care. And as you alluded to, Danielle, that system creates a lot of unnecessary barriers. And like any other system, if you don't understand how it works, then you ultimately won't get what you need. And so you need to understand you know, all of the different resources that are available. You need to understand health insurance. You need to understand the nuances of what's covered, what's not covered, how to have a voice in medical settings and how to communicate effectively with the medical team. You need to understand that you have power and agency and that, you know, there's more than one way to go about something and, you know, just being comfortable and confident, asking questions pushing back politely, exploring options. And the reality is that, particularly for those in the sandwich generation, there's only a limited amount of time. You know, you're, you're at a job all day. Right. Now you may be working remotely, you're taking care of kids, you're doing all these other things. And so a lot of the work that I do is not even just for people who don't understand it, but for people who frankly just don't have the time to spend two hours on hold, you know, waiting for somebody from the insurance company to pick up or going back and forth related to some service that was denied or trying to find you know a specialist for a particular condition or doing research to figure out if this nursing facility that the hospital's trying to send your mom or dad to is even high quality so a lot of it is um, convenience and then the other big part of it is just understanding the system and really just taking the reins so that the family member can focus on their family member. You know, you can focus on caring for your mom, your dad, your grandma, and not having to worry about all of the other um, intricacies that go along with navigating the system. So, you know, I'd like to, I'd like for you to give me an example because, you know, in some cases, you know, we know our relative is is aging, whether it's a mom or a dad or or a grandparent. You know, we're preparing for transitioning them either out of their own home if they're living alone or, you know, into a facility. But how do you start? What do you do when it comes on suddenly? A relative goes into the hospital, you know, things don't go well. They have to go in the rehab. You got to find a rehab facility for them. And then, you know, after a certain time, they're telling you, we've rehabbed all we can. You now have to move them to a nursing home. You may agree or disagree with that. What's the checklist? Like, how does one even begin to figure out what to do first? Those are great questions. I, I want to say that, you know, primarily in our country, we really need to get to a place where we're doing this proactively. And I have some things, you know, that I'm thinking of to really try to create programs for that. Because like you said, Danielle, this usually happens in an emergency. And that's what happened with, with me and my sister. Right, you know? right. Like we had not done anything to plan for the day that my dad would no longer be able to care for himself. So um, I definitely think that we could do a better job being proactive about that. But if you find yourself in that situation where you know it is abrupt, your loved one is hospitalized, now they're having to go to rehab, and now you're trying to figure out what are we going to do next? Um, one of the first things that you can do, even if they don't have Medicare, 
is to go to the Medicare website, uh, medicare.gov. And they have a search tool where you can actually search nursing facilities, you know, nursing homes, and you can look at quality data. And this is part of what I do for my clients. You can go on their website and see the safety ratings, quality ratings. You can see documentation about their last inspection. You can look at um, the ratings that their you know, patients have given them and family members have given them. Um, and that's just a nice way to start because honestly, the list that you're going to be given in that hospital or from that rehab facility, a lot of times, um, if you pull up those facilities online, you wouldn't put your dog or cat there. Like that's how bad some of these facilities are. And because family members aren't aware of that, often they're just doing eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You know, they're just picking something or maybe they're seeing this one's closest to my home. Those things are important, but without that additional research, your family member could end up in a facility that is known to provide poor quality care. So that's definitely the first thing that I would do is, you know, start doing that research. In terms of preparation, you know, long-term care insurance is something that many of us don't have and don't know about. And that's a that's another topic, but I wish you would touch on it a little bit because we think of life insurance, we think of health insurance, but I, I really think it's it's our generation, Nicole, that thinks more of it. I know that um, I had to force my mother to get it a while back and um, while she was young and healthy, uh, which she still fortunately is, and I think it was the best decision I ever made because I don't think people really realize the astronomical costs you will face when you have to put someone into a rehab or a long-term care facility. Absolutely. Even assisted living, you know, in our area is upwards of $5,000 a month, easily seven dollars to $8,000 a month if you need memory care. Um, so yes, and those, those services are not covered. A lot of people think that they're covered by health insurance and they're not. So a long-term care insurance plan is really something that you pay into, like you said, when you're young and healthy, because you often can't get it when you're not young and when you're not healthy, and it provides um, at least some of the costs, it, it helps to cover the cost of things like home nursing care, home health aids that may come in and help your loved one get in and out of bed or help them with meals, maybe some light housekeeping. And it also helps to cover the cost if they need to be in a long-term care facility. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I wanna switch gears a little bit. Uh, this pandemic, <laughs> which we're still in now over two years later, has really brought the issue of health inequities into the national conversation, I would say, really more than I'm used to hearing about it. So tell me about some of the work you're doing in that space. Yes, the um, pandemic has really just kind of just put the magnifying glass on a problem that honestly has been here and has been known for more than a couple of decades. Um, but suddenly, you know, that uh, along with George Floyd's murder and just all of the other atrocities just really awakened America to, uh, you know, structural racism. And certainly healthcare is not immune to that. So as you stated, you know, we've been having a lot more focus in the healthcare industry on uh, health inequities, health disparities, these differences between outcomes among white people compared to black, Latino, other marginalized communities that have absolutely nothing to do with biology and everything to do with structural racism and with, um, with bias. And so I've been honored to have the opportunity to work with several local healthcare organizations 
including the Maryland Hospital Association and the Maryland Patient Safety Center to develop content around uh, health disparities, health inequities. So initially at the height of the COVID pandemic over the fall and like in the early part of this year, we did a series of talks to healthcare providers and institutions about COVID vaccine hesitancy among uh, people of color, communities of color, and also healthcare workers of color. And so I provided talks really explaining the background of structural racism in medicine to set the stage for why communities of color are hesitant, not only when it comes to vaccine, but in receiving medical care in general. And then we just, you know, discuss some solutions to that and how healthcare organizations need to partner more effectively with their communities. I'm now engaged in a maternal health equity project for the state of Maryland, where we have developed an amazing toolkit that's going to get released in about a month or so, targeting non-obstetric providers, so urgent care, emergency departments, primary care doctors, and really helping them to gain uh, increased awareness and understanding and knowledge about maternal morbidity, which are the complications that women face after giving birth or while pregnant, and also the bias uh, that goes along with the fact that explains why Black women are three times more likely to die and twice as likely to suffer a complication in pregnancy. So uh, there's many other people doing this very important work, both here in Maryland and throughout the country. And uh, it's a very important time for healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit more about your journey and that of others. When we think of doctors and the road to becoming one, our consideration usually begins and ends with the difficulty of getting into and then succeeding in medical school. But can you speak to the importance of particularly getting black girls and boys interested in the sciences and medicine, the, the entire STEM field, at a very young age? Because I just don't see us doing a great job of that in the U.S. as a whole. I completely agree. This, this journey to becoming a doctor, as you stated, Danielle, starts way before medical school. And unfortunately, only 5% of physicians in this country are, are Black. Uh, 5%, despite the fact that we represent about 15 or 16% of the population. And, and what we know is that a lot of that has to do with those early opportunities that you're alluding to. And so being introduced to science and technology and you know math, engineering, all of those things at a very early age breeding that interest in science, having access to um, educational programs that make science fun, even having access to a, a proper science education in schools. You know, we know that many of our public schools don't even have labs in, in their schools. And so the kids aren't really introduced to the scientific method and introduced to the fact that it can be fun. And, and also just having access to um, mentors who look like them, that's also incredibly important. And, um, and so we know that the, the, the skills that it takes to not only get into medical school, but to succeed start way earlier than that. And so learning how to study, even you know, knowing the right classes to take, sometimes there are people who are interested in being a doctor and they find out too late that, you know, oh, you should have taken this in high school. So having access to AP or advanced placement classes all of those things are important. And, and many people, uh, many students in communities of color aren't even introduced to that because of the disparities that we see in our education system. So it's really, really important 
to um, increase access to you know, summer programs and other enrichment programs, those things that prepare us for high school, for college, and then ultimately for medical school as well. The great advice, great advice. So let me ask you this, uh, as a friend, any more TED Talks in your future? <laughs> you know, I think I have a few more TED Talks uh, in my future, I hope. I, I, it's funny, I was going to apply to a couple this year, and then I realized I really have a lot on my plate right now, so I had to kind of take a step back. But I definitely have a few more big ideas that I would love to share standing on that red dot, so maybe in 2023. Excellent, excellent. So Dr. Nicole Rochester, I have really appreciated this conversation and the wealth of information uh, that you have given us. And I want to thank you for taking the time out to be on The Daily Dose. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. We cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number 410-235-6060. We've also got a button on the WIPR app so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410 410- Two three five six zero six zero. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Callan Tanzel Suddeth. Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Wykim. Thanks for listening.